our, our passage today will be verses 29 through 38 of Acts chapter 20. And we've been in Acts chapter 20 really for quite some time. Um, I think it's a, a very important chapter in the book of Acts. So we have paused here and lingered in this, in this chapter to get a sense of what I see are really significant aspects uh, of the gospel. Acts chapter 20 records Paul's farewell address to the, to the elders of the Ephesian church. He's been in Asia ministering for three years, planting churches, making disciples, and now he's leaving the, uh, this area and he's not going to return. And so there is uh, lots of emotion filled in this passage. The character of this chapter provides also an insight into the church and into church leadership and Paul's example. And some of the things that we've seen, and I hope we keep this in mind, is that the church belongs to God. In fact, Paul calls it the church of God. And we take that as a possessive or perhaps a character type quality, that it is the church that is characterized by God, or it is the church that is owned by God. It is owned by God because it was purchased by Jesus at great cost. So it is a church that belongs to God, purchased by Christ, and then it is uh, the, the leadership of the church has been installed by the Holy Spirit. And so we see it is God who owns this church, purchased by Christ, administered then by the Holy Spirit. The church then is stewarded by a group of men known as elders and, or overseers or pastors. Let me just remind you that there is also a, a role for the congregation as well. And while this chapter, Acts chapter 20, doesn't address the congregational role, so we're not emphasizing that, I will talk a little bit about that today. I've briefly mentioned it in, in the past. Today we'll mention it again. But since it is not the center of our text, I'm not going to give it, um, uh, give it great emphasis so, Acts chapter 20, Paul's farewell address, we learn about the church, its value. Um, we learn about how the church is structured, or at least its leadership, uh, uh, how the leadership is, is, uh, is given by God. So, let me just give you a little bit of a preview as to where we, we're going to go today. Paul's going to continue to give further instruction to the elders, and specifically in the area of false teachers. In fact, he begins with saying, I, you know, I've warned you that false, um, that savage wolves are going to come in from among you. And so Paul talks uh, significantly about false teachers who will arise and threaten the church. So that's the first part of our message today, is dealing with these fierce wolves and men who twist God's word. And then as we continue on and draw this chapter to a close, we're going to once again see the example of a leader. Paul puts himself out as one to be emulated. And what we're going to see is his final example of a leader is that he is unselfish, that he does not covet. And I think this is a direct attack against the false teachers, but we'll, we'll get to that uh, when we get there. So if you will... Um, follow along with me as we read Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 38. Listen to God's word. 
I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful, most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Father, we pray that you would give illumination to your word, to the hearts and minds of all who would hear this message. Grant your spirit to guide us and lead us, and give me wisdom and ability to proclaim the awesomeness of your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Paul begins with this idea of, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And so the shepherd imagery that Paul had begun back in verse 28, how he said he was telling the elders to be careful of themselves and to take care of the flock. So that shepherd imagery continues as Paul now warns of fierce wolves whose intent is to decimate the flock, to decimate the church. The savage wolves here are the are false teachers who come in among you. He says, um, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. They will not spare the flock. This certainly harkens back to uh, Ezekiel chapter 30, 30, I'm sorry, 22, verse 27, where the prophet writes, Her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. And certainly this imagery uh, reminds the reader of John chapter 10 where Jesus talks about false shepherds and how he he puts puts himself forth as the good shepherd, but he warns of of shepherds who don't guard against thieves who come in to, uh, to decimate the flock. But he is the good shepherd and he protects against thieves. It is also a reminder of the teaching of of Jesus who warned of wolves in sheep's clothing that outwardly they appear to be orthodox, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And so we need to keep in mind that oftentimes appearances uh, can be, be deceptive. But what Jesus is getting at there is the heart of these individuals is to decimate the flock. We would probably do well to consider how Jude dealt with this very issue. Jude is very explicit in dealing with false teachers. And listen to a sampling of some of the things that that Jude talks about in regards to these uh, false, these fierce wolves who seek to decimate the flock. He says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago 
were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They've crept in amongst you and they teach blasphemous things. And he says um, this, Yet in a like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authorities, and blaspheme the glorious ones goes on and says, these people, they don't understand what they're doing. They are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning, unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain. They abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs. Listen how Jude describes them. These are hidden reefs at your love feast. They feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds. Fruitless trees in late autumn. Twice dead. Uprooted. Wild waves of the sea. Casting up foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Jude does not hold back. This, these are the ones that Paul is saying. Listen, when I leave, fierce wolves are going to come in amongst you. They appear to be one thing, but be aware, as Job or as Jude says, they, they feast with you in your love feast. They're hidden reefs, like, like a ship going along, but they don't see the danger underneath. They feast with you in your love feast. That everything seems to be fine, but they are doubly dead. They're like a tree that should be fruitful, but it is not. They are waterless clouds. You think, oh, we're going to get some refreshing rain, but they give nothing. And then he goes on. Paul does, and he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things from among you. Now, Bible students have debated, is this from amongst the elders or from amongst the church? And I think we could probably answer that question easily by saying yes. From, amongst, from within the church and even from within the leadership of the church, men will arise and they will speak twisted things. In other words, they pervert God's word. To twist is to, to pervert something. It stands in contrast to something being straight or plumb or right. It is to take something true and to distort it. So they don't take something that's just way out there. They're taking orthodox teaching of Christianity, the orthodox gospel, and then twisting it so that it's no longer what it originally was. These are exceptionally dangerous things. And their purpose, Paul tells us, is to draw away disciples to themselves. That is, to pull someone in a direction they ought not to go. John Calvin, in his commentary on the book of Acts, writes this, almost all corruptions of doctrines flow from pride and selfish ambition. He says that a right handling of Scripture leads to Christ being preeminent, but that means that they are not. And pride stands at the 
part of this twisting of the Scripture. The goal is to make them preeminent, to make them something, and in so doing, they diminish Christ. False teachers are invariably addicted to themselves, seeking to advance their own own glory, thus robbing Christ of His. Perhaps this is the greatest crime of all. Not only do they twist God's Word, but in doing so, not only lead people astray, but they diminish the preeminence and beauty and glory and majesty of Christ. True teaching, on the other hand, will exalt Christ and make Him preeminent over all. So Paul says, when I leave, just get ready. This is the type of thing that can happen. Elders have as one of their primary responsibility is to be discerning and to be able to judge what is orthodox and what is heterodox. The elders are to guard against false teaching. False teaching that comes from outside of the church and false teaching that arises from within the church. Have you ever noticed how much of the Bible is dedicated to pushing back against false teaching? A warning against false teaching. We don't have to go very far in the Bible to find a warning against false teaching. And of course, the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, are filled with a warning against don't take up the idols of the nations. You're going to um, be tempted to take, take up the idols of the nations. In fact, no, long, no, no sooner are they freed from... Um, Captivity, they come to the mount of the Lord to hear the words of the Lord and they take up and they make an idol. The whole book of Judges shows the effects of what happens when people are led astray by false teaching and the judgment that God inflicts upon them and then His mercy when they repent. Saul himself twisted God's word and God rejected him. The prophets... The prophets are filled with, you're you're following after your own lust. You're following after your own idols. You're listening to prophets who prophesy, but not correctly. They're not prophets of God. And then we get to the New Testament, and certainly um, the Gospels are not absent. The idea of being aware of false teaching. In fact, Jesus' great sermon on the the Mount of Olives, uh, where... Oftentimes, we we get really focused on on the return of Christ from that discourse. But I think one of the primary issues there is false teaching because the disciples say, Jesus, basically, when's the temple going to be destroyed? And when should we look for your return? And his first words are, see to it that no one misleads you. He doesn't give them a time frame. He says, don't be deceived. Certainly, when we get to the epistles when we get to books like Galatians, when we get to books like Ephesians, when we get to um, a book, the whole book of Hebrews, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, all are dealing with addressing the problem of false teaching. Perhaps so much of the Bible is dedicated to a warning against false teaching. And hence, other Gospels is because it is pervasive and we are susceptible to it. In fact, in Ephesus, false teachers did arise. False teachers did arise in Ephesus after Paul left. 
Uh, we see this in Ephesians, but probably the place we see it most clearly is in the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Jesus writes a letter to the Ephesian church. And to the Ephesian church, Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Um, and so the, the Ephesian church had done, actually done, by the time this was written, had done a very, very good job of being aware of false teachers and not buying into their lies. Probably um, in Acts chapter 20, written maybe 57 A.D., and the book of Revelation in the mid-90s or so. So some 40 years has gone by and they've done a good job. In fact, Jesus even commends them that they have not borne the teaching of the false teachers. Let me just put this out there um, for awareness sake. They did a very good job of upholding right doctrine. And in the process, they lost their first love. While focused on the battlefront of false teaching, another attack on their unguarded flank was prospering. They were diligent in guarding the truth, but they forgot the goal of doctrine. Doctrine became, it seems, doctrine and teaching, as important as that is, became more about being precise and not about loving God. They forgot about loving God. And I pray that in, this, in our church, at the church on Randall Place, doctrine is central. Teaching is important. But let us understand why we teach doctrine. As we teach the truths of God, it should draw us to a place where we love Him more and more and more. Not so that we know more facts and we can put down vain arguments, but so that we would love God and love our neighbor more and more. I often tell my theology class on the very first night, I say, we're going to learn a lot of stuff. If it causes arrogance in you, we're not doing it right. If all you do is get a lot of knowledge about things like infralapsarianism, and you can explain the hypostatic union to such precision that you would convince the entire world of that position, and yet you've lost your love for God, that should draw you to a place of falling on your knees and calling out to the God who has created us. And so, false teachers did arise. The Ephesian church did a pretty good job of putting them away. But beware, as we fight one battle, other attacks are being launched as well. So Paul warns them of the false teacher. We are susceptible to heretical teachings. And the reason we're susceptible to heretical teachings is because they nurture and reflect the way we want things to be and not satisfied with the way God has made them, which is better. 
We get so wrapped up and we want things to be a particular way. And so we manipulate or we twist God's word to be the way we want it to be rather than to take God's word as it is and to believe what God has said. So there is false teaching that rises up and we are susceptible and we are warned. Paul says, therefore be alert because of the fierce wolves, because of men who will come in amongst you from amongst yourself and twist God's word. Therefore, therefore be alert. This is to be constantly on the alert. Be constantly alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Here we begin to see Paul's love for the people. We see Paul's heart. I don't see Paul as a weepy man. But he was empathetic. Paul points the elders to his his examples that for three years he admonished, that is to warn, to correct, to instruct. And it was not a heartless, cold instruction of... um, cold, formal teachings, but a faithful, loving concern for the well-being of those whom he cared for. I admonished you in tears. Again, I don't know if Paul actually was weeping, but he saw what, what would happen when people took God's Word and misused it. And he admonished them and he corrected them. And some people went astray. And that brought grief to Paul. Paul was a man who loved those whom he He cared for those whom God has put in his charge. Paul warned, he encouraged, he admonished, and he did so with tears. What a great, what a great example of a great leader. I read a a story, and while I have a a few little quibbles about the story, I think the the message is good, where um, a particular individual asked, a church member, why they had fired their former pastor. And he answered, because he kept telling us all we were going to hell. What does your new pastor say? He keeps telling us we're all going to hell. What's the difference? The first one seemed like he enjoyed it, and this new one does it with tears in his eyes. So Paul admonished them with tears. Grieved him to see men and women take God's word and reject it or twist it. And then Paul says this. Therefore be alert. Verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. What a great benediction. That may be one of the best benedictions in all of the scriptures. So let me repeat that. And now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I set you before God. I commend you to God. I set you before God. I place you in God's great care and to the care of the word of his grace. That's what I'm I'm leaving. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. 
I give you to God and to the gospel. And at the very center of God's gospel is the word of his grace. You should note also that the word of grace is prevalent throughout the scriptures. We find God's grace in Eden. We find the law in Eden. Don't eat of the fruit um, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you will die. There's the law. Grace comes and Adam and Eve ate of the fruit that they were forbidden to eat of and God provided a substitute for them and gave them a promise that life was going to continue in fact through the woman who would become a savior who would reverse the curse and bring an end to death. That's grace. The law they broke and God shows grace even in this very chapter 3 of the book of Genesis. We find grace. We see law and grace. We find it in Eden. Mankind rebelled against a holy God and he spared them through a substitute, through his unmerited favor. When Adam and Eve ran from God, he restored them and that from Eve would come a Savior who would reverse the curse of death. And Adam believed God evident by naming his wife Eve, that is the mother of the living. He believes God. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and that from his seed would come one who would be a blessing to all the nations. And the New Testament makes clear that that one who would come from Eve, that the blessing of the nations who would come from the line of Abram was and is Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of Adam, who bore the curse of sin on the cross, who offers forgiveness of sin who all, who, to all who will entrust themselves to his grace. I commend you to God and to the good news of God, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all of the saints. The gospel, in other words, will strengthen you against the schemes of Satan and false teachers and in the future place you with all of the saints who will be eternally dwelling in the presence of God Almighty. This is the gospel. Paul said, I'm... This is what I'm leaving you with. I'm leaving you with the gospel. Remember it. Remember, the gospel is not just for unbelievers. The gospel is for believers. I'm telling you today, man, if you've walked away from God, if you've turned from God, if you've had a bad week, you've sinned against the holy God. The substitute, Jesus Christ, is sufficient to forgive you of your sins. He calls us to repent and to be restored. This is why when we have our prayer of confession, you will also notice that we have a prayer or a a response of assurance. Because we just don't say, Lord, have mercy on me. A sinner. We also respond to that with, this is what the word of God says to the repentant. The gospel is for all of us. So just a quick summary of this first portion. The Ephesian church um, that the elders oversee has incredible value. It has been purchased by the blood of Christ. There are going to be both external threats and internal threats. And the elders have been given charge to be, be overseeing this. But let me just take note real quickly of 
um, kind of moving away from Acts for just a moment, just to remind the congregation, all who consider the church on Randall Place their home, those who have uh, uh, joined us by a covenant agreement. One of the roles of the congregation is to guard the gospel. That is, to take seriously your responsibility to guard against false teaching. That is, you need to know what is true and what is false. The elders have a primary role of teaching that, but you also have a role to to study God's Word, to learn God's Word. If you are a member of this church, you have a, a responsibility to guard the church against false teaching. Congregation has a role in this. In fact, I believe that the congregation has a big role in that. Matthew 18, we see that to the church is given the keys of the kingdom. And I don't have time to get into all of that, but to the keys of the kingdom. Um, that is, you have the right to bind and loose. That is, to forbid or to deny and to approve. That is, you can say, yes, we approve this or we deny this. This is in, in effect to those who, who sin against the church or against others. You have the right to say, yes, this is um, truth and this is error. Those keys are given to the the church. So while much of Acts chapter 20 is, is given to the elders, and there's much that the congregation needs to, uh, uh, to know about what, it, what an elder is supposed to do, and it's all obviously important for, for our elders to know what God has called us to do. Um, remember, the congregation has a very, very dynamic and serious role in how the church is governed. So Paul commends them to God. And then he moves on and he brings back to him, he brings himself back into the picture as an example. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Once again, Paul puts himself out as an example. Now, I believe when he says, I did not covet anything, I think he, this is a polemic or this is an attack against false teachers. In other words, Paul did not work for personal gain or advantage or status and he never used his, his ministry as a mask for greed because Paul came again. False teachers were, were, um, were abusing people. First and Second Corinthians may be one of the primary books of the Bible where we see the error of these false teachings and we see the church's um, acceptance of the false teachers. They had rejected Paul. The Corinthians, especially in Second Corinthians, we see they had rejected Paul because the false teachers would come along and they would charge them an exorbitant fee to hear their teaching. And in that day and age, uh, a philosopher... A philosopher's message was, the value of it was determined based on how much he charged you. If he charged you a lot, it must be something valuable. And so Paul comes along and gives it out for free. And they say, well, Paul must not be saying anything of value. So let's turn to these guys who are abusing us and taking all of our money. Surely their message must be valuable. And Paul says, really? And he rebukes them. For that, and he says, "I never, ch- I did not charge you for my gospel. It is free. You need to put aside these false teachers who come along and and say that for a a fee they will give you 
what God has told them. I'm, Paul says, listen, I'm telling you, God has made known to me the mystery to proclaim to you, and I did not covet your gold, I did not covet your silver, I did not covet anybody's clothes. I did not do my ministry for any advantage or for some exaltation in status. I'm a leather worker. I, I make tents. I work with the hides of animals in the heat of the day and I do that so that I can minister to you without any barriers. One of the marks of an elder and also that of a deacon is to not be fond of sordid gain. A man who wants to fleece the flock undercuts the trust of others, diminishes the veracity of the gospel and brings shame to Christ. Now, let me say, Paul also goes on to say that there is no prohibition against uh, church staff earning a living. Paul talks about that. But much of Paul's life, not all of Paul's life, but much of Paul's life, he earned a living for himself. And this is what he says here. He says, I didn't covet anybody's gold or silver. Unlike false teachers, they're going to come in and they're going to rob you. Look to my example. I didn't rob you of anything. In fact, I worked hard amongst you. You yourself know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. Paul not only worked to, to take care of himself, but his missionary team. Yeah, I provided for them as well. In all these things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than receive. So I did not covet. I worked hard, and I worked hard not to be, so, so as not to be a hindrance to you, but also to help the weak. One reason that we work is to help the weak and to help others. In fact, Paul writes to the Ephesian church, says, the one who steals should not steal any longer, but rather work with his own hands so that he can provide for himself and have a little bit left over to give to others. This is what Paul says. And he's modeled it. He goes, this is what I do. I'm not asking you to do anything that I myself am not willing to do. Mankind was created to work. We live in a day and age, well, probably ever since the beginning, where work is considered a four-letter word. And, well, it actually is a four-letter word, but not in the way that... Sometimes four-letter words are used. The curse is not the word work, but it's thorns and thistles. thistles. And in the eternal state, we will continue to work, if I understand uh, that portion of scriptures correctly. But we will do it minus the thorns and the thistles. We will do it minus the curse. Work is what mankind was created for. And not only so that we can provide for ourselves, not only, but also to help the weak and to help the poor. And he brings up this, this idea, says, remember the words of Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, we do not have this direct quote from Jesus. It is probably oral tradition. Remember how John, and as he closed out his gospel, he said, many other things Jesus didn't said. In fact, if we were to, to record everything, I don't suppose the libraries of the world could contain everything. So we know that Jesus said more than what is recorded in the gospels. This is probably one of those things. It is more blessed to give than to receive. In fact, I would put forth that giving is the antidote to greed. Paul says, I'm not greedy. I work with my own hands to supply my needs and the needs of the missionary team and not to be a burden to you, but also to help the weak. 
Giving, I believe, is the antidote to greed. If you have a heart that you struggle with greed and covetousness, perhaps the antidote beyond just repenting and asking God for forgiveness and trusting in his assurance, but also to be giving, to learn how to give things away. But I think that not only is there an importance in giving as we might just see the material benefit to that, but I think there's a relational benefit, and I believe that giving builds relationships. Paul has poured out his life to these people. For three years, he poured out his life for them. And the, the, the result was friendships that probably no amount of money could be purchased. They knew that Paul loved them, not for what they could provide for him, but because they were intrinsically valuable. In other words, Paul did not think the Ephesian church and the elders and the people of Ephesus were valuable because they were a paycheck. He loved them because he loved them, because they were intrinsically valuable, made in the image of God, and God's, uh, and then he saw them renewed and born again, and he loved them because they were uh, new creatures. In other words, I, I don't love you because you provide any monetary value to me. I don't love you because you are a giving unit. And they knew that. They knew if we got nothing to give to Paul, he loves us. What a great relationship we see. And you can see the emotion in this departure. He kneels down and he prays with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful. And then they walk with him to the ship. They don't want to see him go. This is because Paul poured his life into these individuals. So just a couple of points of conclusion. As we wrap up Acts chapter 20. One of the big lessons here is that we are to be examples in both word and deed. Paul didn't just preach the gospel. He was somebody who said, imitate me. Be like me. Don't covet anybody's silver or gold or clothes. Don't use people for a status um, to, to increase your status. I didn't do that. Paul lived a life emulating Christ. But he didn't leave it there. He spoke faithfully the gospel. He wept with tears when people forsook the gospel or twisted the gospel. But he taught accurately to a place where even 40 years later, this church still stands against Herod. And they still know truth from error. They're not a perfect church. As we see in, in, in Revelation, they're not a perfect church. Oh, by the way, we do have a, a, one of the early church fathers wrote in, about, in, in the early 2nd century that the Ephesian church actually did repent of their lovelessness at, recorded in Revelation um, chapter 2. And so we do see that the church heard the words of Christ, repented, and, um, um, and I believe to the glory of Christ. So Paul was an example in both word and deed, and so are uh, those who oversee the church, and then that should flow out to the congregation to be examples in word and deed. We need to be diligent in the task. Paul shared the gospel wherever he went. He was a great commission man. He made disciples wherever he went. 
baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and taught them all that Christ had commanded. This is the word to the church. We also have learned that the church has great value, and we do not have permission to ignore what God has purchased. We do not have permission to diminish what God has proven to be infinitely valuable. Let's spend a, maybe a few moments in reflection. I did give you some, um, some discussion questions at the end of your notes, and maybe um, after the close of the service, you can discuss amongst those in your family or those who you're listening with um, some, of these, uh, some of these discussion questions. But let's go and spend a few moments in just quiet reflection and ask the Lord to uh, imprint these things upon our hearts.